Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next episode of Diecast Movie Podcast. In a minute, we'll be starting the interview with Laura Calluette, who's going to be at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, September 15th for the 17th, 2022. So I hope you get a chance to come out there and meet her, along with Jeremy Ambler and Jennifer Savage, who I've interviewed, and those interview episodes are out prior to this one. Um, otherwise, I hope everybody enjoys the interview, and I'll talk to you after that. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. This is Steve, and today I'm going to be doing an interview of an actress that you've probably seen in tons of different films and TV work, commercials, Laura Calluette. She's also an author, an acting coach, and she's done directing. She's done a little bit of everything, and her IMDb page shows that because it's pretty extensive. She's been in films that most of you probably seen before, like Enemy of the State, Django Unchained. She's also been on TV shows like Fantasy Island and Jag, and of course, um, Sugar Queen. So, how you doing today, Laura? I'm good. How are you? I- I'm doing well. I'm doing really well now because I'm getting to finally interview you. We've been having this in the works for a few weeks now, and uh, finally getting it in. And I don't know what the weather's like down there where you're at in Louisiana, but in Maryland, we're having what I call a a chill wave where suddenly it's all high 70s, low 80s for the last week. It's been nice and cool here in August for some strange reason. No, we're having regular South Louisiana August. <laughs> now, we were we were cooler before. We did have a, a lull, but, yeah, we're back into the, the mid-90s. Well, it's probably heading our way, too. So I guess you, you had it first, and it's coming our way. So it's enjoy it while we can. <laughs> well, the South is really a trendsetter, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing listeners want to know is that you're you're going to be at the Hunt Valley, Maryland, for the convent, the Mid Atlantic Nostalgia Convention coming up in September 15th through the 17th, and people get a chance to meet you and stuff. It's, you do like what one or two conventions a year? I usually do one a year. You're right. I, I'm not much. I don't, I don't do it a lot, but I enjoy it when I do. And I think one reason I enjoy it so much is because I do it so infrequently. That, that's true. And I don't know if you notice what the convention you're going to, but all the money they make, all 100% of the proceeds go to St. Jude's. I saw that. I, you know, I, I, did another, um, I did another convention a couple of years ago that was a similar thing where they would, uh, that it was a nonprofit. And it's very rare for a convention to be a nonprofit. So that's exciting. And that's one of the reasons I love this convention because you go there and it's 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 a family atmosphere. You'll enjoy it. It's laid back, and Martin Graham's runs a wonderful show. So, which I'm sure your agent um, Scott Ray told you about before. Well, and I saw we have quite a exciting list of people for everybody to come meet. Well, who, who out of that list, who are you excited to meet? Because I know actors when the people that go there, they always like to get to meet other people too. And 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 so, who are you excited about trying this? Talk to. Well, not as an actor, more as a TV viewer. I have to say, I'm a little uh, a little thrilled to see Loretta Swit and Jamie Farr. I grew up on Mash, and so you know, I I'm kind of excited to see the two of them in person. That'll be fun. There's a look. There's a lot of people who are, um, you know, part of the history of our culture. So I think there's something for everyone. Uh, I'm sort of a baby of the bunch. You know, there's not. <laughs> Not that many people from 90s and 2000s projects as much as there are from, you know, the 
from the dawn of television on. I mean, we really have some, you know, Bob Eubanks. There's a lot of really interesting, exciting people. There's some Bond girls and, you know, all kinds of, of there's a lot of bat, uh, bat women, cat women, whatever, you know, lots of, <laughs> so, so yeah, there's, uh, there's a little something for everybody. I think as television con- continues to evolve and film continues to evolve, there's something beautiful about reconnecting with where we've all come from as a culture. You know, television is, is pretty much an American thing like jazz, you know, it, it, they have it other places, but we were the ones that started it and perfected it. And, and everybody else is just trying to do what we did. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, film belongs to the world, but television, that's American. And, and I, I think having people like Greg Ev again, you know, <laughs> began to bear him it. No, it doesn't, it's all just part of how we were shaped as Americans growing up in this culture. So I think it's exciting. And speaking of reconnecting, you're going to get to reconnect to some of your roots because you grew up for a good portion of your youth in Maryland. I did. I did. And, um, you know, I, I, I think the biggest connective tissue between Maryland and New Orleans is uh, right there on the T-shirt. Maryland's for crabs. But did you know that about 70% of those Maryland crabs you're eating come from the Gulf? <laughs> so, <laughs> So they're the same but different. And mostly it's not the crabs themselves that make the difference. It's how we prepare them. You know, you guys put the seasoning on the outside and we boil it into the inside. And uh, I have to say that all those years living in Maryland never changed my mind about which one of those was correct. (laughs) Oh, you're not going to say it though, are you? You're going to keep that a secret? (laughs) I, I, well, I, I think honestly, I just, to me, it's kind of, would you put the seasoning for a pineapple on the outside of the pineapple? Would you put the seasoning for a watermelon on the outside of a watermelon? It seems a little crazy to me to put the seasoning for the crab meat on the outside of the crab. But I did it, and I enjoyed it. It's just not my choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's Old Bay, so everybody loves, you know, in Maryland. That's true. Now, I have no argument against Old Bay, and especially on the French fries and vinegar. I will definitely follow you down that trail. Oh, yeah, when you go to get those boardwalk fries with the, oh, yep. oh. Yep. I'm salivating for them right now because it's just. Right. <laughs> well, and I love Old Bay on deviled eggs. I love, I mean, Old Bay is a very good seasoning. Oh, and I've, I've actually added it to many different things, too. So it's, it's, it's one of those yeah. great seasonings to get. And, uh, and of course, you know, people that don't know Old Bay, try it. You'll love it. It's a seasoning. You can put it on tons of different things. And if you don't like seafood or, or, or meats or that kind of stuff, you can put it on salads you could put it on other things and so I yeah my, i got for christmas uh, yeah for christmas i got some uh seasoned nuts i got some uh nuts that were seasoned with and, uh, and they were fantastic so there you go so old bay goes of everything <laughs> <laughs> i don't know maybe not everything but you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> i'm a big cayenne goes with everything person and that I do believe, like every everything, like chocolate ice cream with cayenne. Yeah, like I'm into the cayenne. But as I, I as I recall, cayenne is one of the many things that's in Old Bay. I have to look now. You know, I've never really looked to see all the ingredients of it, but it probably is. Now, not only- well, there's a lot in there, so who knows? So sometimes you don't want to know. You don't want to know exactly what's <laughs> in things. It's, it's, 
It's like hot dogs. You really don't want to know what's in the dog. Oh, let's hope it's not like hot dogs. That's a pretty bad list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's some things you just don't want to know. You know. <laughs> but Old Bay's been around forever, so if it was something bad, I'm sure it would have been noted already. Right? Yeah, there would be some stuff. Right? Yeah. I wasn't the guinea pig generation. That came before us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You and I are in the same generational area, so it's, yes. uh, it's, it's, it's the good <laughs> stuff. And I think I can pretty much guess one of your favorite college mascots is probably going to be the, I don't know, the Terrapin. Yes. Although again, yes, it had to have two because I was raised by two LSU Tigers. So even though I did not choose to go to LSU, you, if you raised by two LSU Tigers, you're a tiger, man. That's just part of it. So, so yeah, I, uh, I am a turf. I, I am proud of the of my years at University of Maryland. I really enjoyed being a student there, and think it was not just a great education, but a great experience. A terrific campus. That said, and I actually went to two campuses because I went to UMBC and then UNCP. Um, oh, bulldog first. <laughs> well, because I was sort, it was kind of like the training wheels version. I, I went to the smaller feeder school first. I didn't know I was going to go to College Park. It had to do with majors and things changing. And, you know, so I, I you know, life is what happens while you're making other plans. So it, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I ended up at College Park and really enjoyed it. It's huge. Uh, it is, when I was there, it was 35,000 students at just that one campus. And I was coming from Columbia, Maryland, which at the time was 50,000 people. So basically, University of Maryland College Park was the size of the city I was coming from. So, you know, I, I don't think it's a bad idea to transition. You know, UMBC at that time had about 8,000 students. So that was a really nice transition from a 300-person graduating class of high school to 8,000 students. To, you know what I mean? Like, that made sense. I didn't plan it that way, but if I had, it would have been a smart plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes fate puts you in the proper spots at the right moments at the right times. And you, and you look back in yeah. hindsight and realize, oh, that was a good way to go. And it worked out well for yeah. you. Yeah. I, I, look, one reason to go with the flow is because uh, it works out well often. Another reason to go with the flow is you can't fight a tidal wave. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> Now, what led you to want to become a, an actress? You know, I mean, what, was it something that you saw on TV or the movies or a theater show? Or was it something you got in high school? What got, what got you that bug? Gosh, this is a question I get asked all the time. You'd think I'd be better at answering it by now. I have a weird answer. I am not a theater kid. I did not grow up wanting to be an actor or a movie star or on TV or in a theater near you or name in lights or any of those things that people attach to that they're like, I want that. I actually being from a, you know, a government family, a government town, government, I didn't even know that was a job. When I would watch I Dream of Genie on the TV, I didn't know anybody was getting paid for that. It just never occurred to me. I was, I am a very practical person. I had a very practical plan for myself. I had finished my master's degree in creative writing and English literature, and I was starting my doctorate. And so I was at University of Maryland um, getting my guidance and, you know, like figuring out all my P's and Q's and getting all my T's crossed and I's dotted so that I could start my doctorate. And I was running a dress shop for Jessica McClintock, and I taught. Uh, college English composition at night 
And then in my free time, I modeled. And I was modeling in New York and I was coming home on the train and I was, you know, just leaning on the window watching the world go by and I heard a voice and the voice said, you're supposed to be an actor. I am not accustomed to hearing voices. That would be the whole list of voices I've heard <laughs> and the whole list of things they've said. And I guess I might feel a little crazy if I hadn't heard the exact same story with the exact same line. You're supposed to be an actor. Rene Russo has the exact same story with the exact same. I read that, so I hope it's true. But in any case, I listened. So I do not, I did not pick acting and acting did not pick me, but I was called. It is my calling. Well, say, you do a wonderful job of it, and it's just, it's amazing. You just, like, suddenly, you know, um, everything's going in one direction, and it's like, okay, I'm going to go this way, you know? like, a to- like inst- you. Instead of going right, I'm going to go totally left. I'm sure your parents are probably um, a little bit inquisitive of the, of the uh, total change in direction. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, because parents are people, and so they're different people, and they have different reactions. My mom, when I told her, she said, well, just call me when you're famous. And I said, you're not going to tell me this is the stupidest idea. I'm a homeowner. I have a great job. I have a career ahead of me. I'm getting my doctorate. Like, you know, everything I ever wanted, I'm working toward. I'm, you know, I'm going to be a professor and an author. And and she said, well, everything you ever said you were going to do, you just did. So call me when you're famous. And then my dad, on the other hand, was like, are you out of your mind? That's so stupid. You know, like he was, that's not a way to make a living. That's not, you know. So somewhere in the middle of there is how I felt hearing the voice. Because, you know, I, it, it's not a gimme that I wanted to hear that voice. I'm an extremely practical person. And I like things that, that I can cross off lists. And acting has none of that. And you never know when you're doing well, really. And you never know how long that will last, really. And, you know, it's just there's no job security. There's no seniority. There's no tenure. There's no none, none of the track I was on was this going to give me. So it, it doesn't speak to the practical side of me. That said, one reason I wrote my acting book is because there is a practical way to approach this. And I did that because only 1% of the people who are in my union make enough money to live. And I needed to be one of those or I wasn't going to be able to do this. So I had to figure out how do you be a one percenter in a industry that everybody wants to do? This is not like when you put a help wanted sign at your local restaurant and people are having trouble getting servers. This is, you don't ever have to put a help wanted sign. People are killing each other to be on TV and in film. So there's no opening <laughs> because they're all taken the second anybody puts one out. And they're taken by people who've been doing this for, as you said, you know, in the nostalgia convention, people who've been doing this their whole lives, people who've dedicated themselves to this, that this is their, their skill set. It's what they're amazing at. It's their talent. It's, you know, like, so I had an extremely practical, pragmatic approach to a dreamer's life. And if I hadn't had the, the dreamer part of me that, that my mom helps to encourage, 
and the practical part of me that my father helps to encourage, I don't know what would have become of me in this. It's show business. You have to understand the show part and the business part. And a lot of people forget that. They just think, oh, I'll just go out to L.A., you know, and or, or whatever, and just go to a thing, and they'll see me. I'll do an audition. I'll be the next greatest thing. And from that point right. on, and there, there are thousands and thousands of people every day going to L.A. thinking that they're going to be that one. It's, it's, right. like, it's like Major League Sports. Not everybody gets to the pros. But it's just like that because because if you're – how many people would say out loud, how many people would have the audacity to say out loud that one day I'm going to be Steph Curry? I mean, you'd have to – I don't know how – you'd like probably have to know how to play basketball. <laughs> you'd probably have to be better at it than everybody you've ever met in your entire life. And then you'd probably also have to get lucky and work your butt off. And everybody understands that. They know that there's only one Steph Curry and, and that it takes being him to become him. That that's not a handout. That's not that, that he works his butt off. You expect that he's callous. You expect that he has torn ligaments. You expect that he has scar tissue in his knee, all that. And yet with acting, people are just like, you know what? I think I want to be famous (laughs) as a Academy award winning like what what makes you think it's any easier when the ballerina takes off her slipper her feet are bleeding what makes you think any of this is easy yeah i've talked i've talked to some actors that have had extensive careers <laughs> um nehemiah persoff was one and it's it's a trade you know you're going in there and you're always you're practicing your trade and, and, and learning stuff every time and you're always trying to improve on your craft and i, I those are the ones that know the ins and the outs. And, and, and he's like yourself that had a long career always being, I know that face <laughs> and, yeah. and a successful career. And I, and I think that's one of the things people don't realize you don't have to be this famous person. You don't have to be a Tom Cruise or a Meryl Streep or Julia Roberts. The a bulk of the acting pool is people that are doing the, the roles that are supporting the rest of the movie. And you can have a long career as long as you're one good at what you're doing and are able to put in the time and the effort to keep yourself improving and, um, and networking in an appropriate way. So you make those connections. Cause once people realize, okay, Oh, she or he does a good job. I worked with them before. Let's have, a, they're, they're applying for this role. Okay. This will be no headache. If I have them, I know I won't have to worry about this, this and that. And then one of the few things in my industry that actually makes sense. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and that, and that's the beauty of it all. And it, and if you can, and then if you're really good at what you do, that's just like bonus, you know. And then and it moves up, it moves everybody up the list. Yeah, talent is important, and and uh, obviously you want to develop your skills, and you want you know some people are born with talent, some some people have to build strong skills and appear to have talent, or grow some talent through their skill set, but you know, there are those who are gifted and those who are just working hard and those who are both and those who are everywhere in between. But the ones who make it are the ones who do the work. They stick to it and they do the work and they do it when it's not fun and they do it when it's hard and they just stay. 
the only way to not make it in my industry, really technically, the only way to know that you're not never going to make it in my industry is to quit. That is true. Well, that goes with not just your industry, it goes with anything in life. If you know, if you quit at it, you're never going to be able to proceed, you know, go forward as long as you're always trying and, and trying right. to improve and getting better and, and, and in a constructive way. You know, some people say, oh, I'm trying, but is, is there trying really effective trying or, you know, or is it just like, oh, I made an effort. I got out of the bed. You know, it's like, no, you're. you're okay. Well, trying is a, one of those words that we fool around with too much. But if you use the word attempt, some of us know that in order to make an attempt, you have to actually have to do something. So I think if you say I'm making an attempt, then we expect to see something. And I live by dare to fail. I, I think it's okay to fail. As a matter of fact, I don't know how you ever become anything without failure, and certainly not in my industry. You know, for every a job I do, there are literally hundreds I don't, that I had to do all the work to try and get that job and didn't get the job. So for every part that you see me do all that work to do the part, there are literally hundreds that I did a lot of work and never got the part. So you have to be willing to put yourself out there over and over and over and fail over and over and over. And I do that by recontextualizing the idea of failure. Yeah. If, if the only time I've succeeded at what I do is when I get the part, well, I write this in my book, uh, no small parts is there's a, if, if all of us who have auditioned for, let's say a Marvel movie, okay. A Marvel movie is going to have, easily 20 to 100 cast members. So if you auditioned for, let's say you auditioned for one of the leads and you ended up with a three-line part, did you fail? Did you fail because you didn't get the lead in a Marvel movie, but you're in the Marvel movie? I would argue that no, you did not fail. You caught the attention of the casting directors. You now have an opportunity to work with the director and the producers and only good things could come from that. And you'll get checks from that Marvel movie until you drop dead. And then your progeny will get those checks. So that's a really weird definition of failure. If getting a smaller part is a failure. Okay. So then there's zillions of us that auditioned for the movie and didn't get any part. Are we failures? Everybody that didn't audition is a failure. Well, then why would I ever audition? If the chances of me getting the job are one in nothing, and every time I don't get the job, I'm a failure. So obviously, I can't look at it that way. I have to have like an opportunity index to help me contextualize it all. Exactly. And also, even if you don't get the role, that particular <clears throat> casting director, well, if you do a good job auditioning, they're going to remember you. And then, of course, there could be two years, four years, who knows how many years yep. later, a month later yep. or whatever. They're like, Oh, they're just, I remember them from this part. They're going to be good. Let's true story. contact their agent. Yeah, that's a true story. It happens all the time. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I can't think of a better way to ensure future work than to try for past work that didn't happen. And I don't think it's just with act. I think it's with everything, you know, like in life is, is you got to keep trying and, and, and making those attempts and always putting in your best, Put forward, or even if you're in a role, and it could be something that could be material. Like some actors, will still, some people watching movies, oh, they phoned it in. You'll see other people; they do a professional job and they're going out there because they know this could be the next thing that somebody else sees, and then that could be the thing that gets them another role. And they know they're not going to just 
you know, mail it in, you know, unless they're, you know. Well, you also have to just keep in mind that the reason you don't get something might have nothing to do with anything that matters. The number one reason I don't get roles is my height. That doesn't matter. And if I were born in another era, like say 2040, maybe nobody would care about height anymore. I mean, how long are we going to pretend that the only reason people don't get married is their height? You know, like that's, that's crazy that we do that on TV and in film. We don't do that in real life. There are tall women with shorter men all over the planet, but in TV and film, we don't represent them. So we would, you know, more easily represent a multicultural, multi-religion, multi-race, multi-gendered um, uh, couple than we would just a tall girl with a shorter guy. This can't be the final frontier. There, there has to be something more crazy than just a tall girl with a shorter guy, an average guy, a normal guy. So, yeah, because the average guy is 5'8". I think they're just now becoming 5'9", is the new average, um, because people are eating their Wheaties, I guess. But in any case, it's still shorter than I am. So, you know, I'm not going to be able to fix that. I'm not going to be able to act my way out of that. It doesn't matter if I beat every other person if I'm too tall for the role in the eyes of the producers. So... Does that mean I should just never audition? Does it mean I should never tell them my height? Does it mean I should say I'm only willing to audition if you guys have a tall male lead? No, what it means is one day the world will change and hopefully I'll still be working when that happens. And one reason the world will change is because over and over and over I showed them that tall girls can act too. Well, exactly. And speaking, going into acting, you know, You've been in a lot of films, like we mentioned earlier. One of them, The Evening Star. You know, was you got yeah. you got to do work with a legend. Many legends, actually. I don't know if you know that cast list, but that was Ben Johnson's last movie. Jack Nicholson, obviously reprising his role. I assume you're talking about Shirley MacLaine doing her Aurora to death. I mean, she's just so amazing in that role. And it was also Juliette Lewis coming off of her Academy nomination for Cape Fear and Miranda Richardson, who was competing with herself for an Academy Award that year. She was two of the five people nominated for a supporting actress that year. So I was surrounded by some of the greatest actors of our time all at one time. It was remarkable as an experience. And it was my very first feature film. So I'm sure you're a part of your first feature film. You're probably going in there trying to learn everything. Like, how are they doing this? Oh, yeah. That? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, my eyes were wide open. And I recommend that to anybody starting out in any job, especially that, you know, um, some people poo-poo the idea of doing background work. I would say that one thing that's really cool about doing background work is that the demands on you as an actor are pretty minimal. You don't have to remember lines. There's going to be, you know, some blocking and some things to be required to do. And you'll have to be alive when the camera rolls on. You know, you'll have to be in the moment. But in between takes, you can actually pay attention to what it takes to make a movie. Like you're there, you're on set, you're the fly on the wall. I have only done one day legitimately of background work. <laughs> um, I, I will say that every once in a while when I produce something, you might see me in the background somewhere. But when I, before I did any other film or television work, the very first thing I did was one day of background work on Jungle Fever. 
And the reason I did that was because I was one of those 11 people that showed up day one, first screening of um, Spike Lee's very first movie. She's got to have it. And I didn't know what I was walking in to see. He was nobody at the time. There were no, there was no press. There was not, you know, he was just, he just popped up in the world. And with this cuckoo movie, and I, I happened to be laid up. I had a, a leg injury and I was in college. And so I, I was only able to do certain things. And one of them was go to the movies. So, so I spent a lot of time in the movies and I saw that movie and was such a huge fan. And I then started watching all of his movies as they came out. And I realized, ah, I'm in New York. I'm studying acting. And I realized, you know, if I ever want to work with Spike Lee, I'm probably going to have to accept that at least 80 something percent of his casting is going to be black and I'm white. So I'm probably never going to have much to contribute to his storytelling, but I really want to see how he does his work. So I decided I'm going to do a day of background work so that I can watch Spike Lee direct. And it was such an incredible opportunity. And they fed me chicken. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what else do you want in life? I got to be in that movie. I'm a dot in the background, you know, and I got to spend a day surrounded by people who are interested in the same thing I'm interested in. But at the end of the day, the real deal, and I got a paycheck, but the thing that was really exciting was I got to watch a master at work. And what a great way to give me on the job training without me having to earn a part. Yeah, that's right. I mean, cause I mean, really it's just a matter of like, Oh, we need somebody there to do this and that in background or I actually did a movie one time where I was in um, background and they called us moving scenery. You know, it's like, you're just, seeing oh, that's moves. well, that's what they call, you know, it, 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 you know, I wasn't really upset with it. It was a Gary Marshall movie and I was just happy when I was walking to the spot. Which Gary Marshall movie? Runaway Bride. Oh, okay. And when we were walking to the, the picnic woods where they were shooting the scene where Julia Roberts is going to ride off on the horse, I just happened to be. As they're, as they're all hurting us down the thing, Gary Marshall comes out. He's walking right next to me and this other guy, and he's talking to both of us the whole time, you know, about different things with the movie, life, what's going on today, that kind of stuff. And it was just like, wow, I'm talking to, you know, Gary Marshall. It was kind of, that, that was just, so it was priceless. You know, it was just to have that yeah. experience. Like you said, but to see how a movie's done and, you know, how they're using the, and how they're going through, how everybody's doing the stuff, it is really cool to see. Well, and it's such a huge machine. I, I, you know, I remember the first time that my mom came to a set and she was like, I've never understood why it takes 200 people to make a movie. And then I invited her to the set of Django and said, now come see what it takes when it's 400 people, you know, like now come see what we're doing. <laughs> so, you know, because it does take 200 people. And when you're on a set and you're paying attention to all the moving parts, you get it that it's 200 integrated people who are just in the end credits. You never see them in any other part of the movie. They're just in the end credits, but they're underfoot of everything. They're, they are making it go, you know, they're the thing that makes the machine go. And, and they're the heart and soul of movie making is the crew. So yeah, that, that experience of being totally surrounded by a beehive of activity 
And then you yourself have to like cocoon and focus in and be in a moment that isn't real with a person you don't know, pretending at intimacies and pretending at, you know, relationships and, and fictional things that are happening to you and people you are or are not, or, you know, it's a lot to do all at one time. So I think it's good to get used to the idea of, oh, this is how a set flows. This is how things operate. This is how things get done on a set. And of course, all sets are run differently. You know, uh, people ask me a lot about working with Quentin. And one reason is because his sets are totally unique. Uh, there's no other, you don't ever work on somebody else's movie and say, oh, it's just like when I, no, it, no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, because he has a very unique, his own way, way of making movies. Now you and Quentin Tarantino have been involved in, in several different works. I mean, first, I think the first thing was Kill Bill Vine 2. And then there was the um, um, the intermission, intermission, and of course, then Django Unchained. Well, there's actually a fourth one, which was a movie I did with Johnny Knoxville um, and uh, Elizabeth Banks, called Daltrey Calhoun, and that was produced by Quentin and directed by Katrina Bronson, Charles Bronson's daughter. And um, so, yeah, Intermission was the one that I directed. It was a short film, and he uh, gave me his camera to shoot that on, which was really cool. And uh, then, yes, obviously, Kill Bill, when I did it, was just Kill Bill. There was no one and two. It was just <laughs> Kill Bill. But, uh, but yes, it's now Kill Bill 2 that I'm in. And um, uh, Django, he wrote the part with me in mind by that time. So we've done four projects together. And I look forward to, you know, seeing what else he does and whether or not I get to be included in any of it. But I think most people know he's only intending to make one more movie and he owes us absolutely nothing. Yeah, I always find it funny when, when they, people say, oh, he has to do this. It's like nobody has to do anything. And, you know, it's, no, unless that's they why open this. he owes us nothing. Exactly. I, I'm just agreeing with you. It's, uh, it's yeah. I'd rather somebody leave when they, I, I always think people when they leave you wanting more. You're more satisfied than when, well, when he just had two babies. You think he's not fascinated by a totally different kind of movie now? <laughs> you don't think he's crawling around on carpet with a phone, just recording babies crawling and you know pooping and whatever? He's it, it's totally fascinating when you have a baby and you think your kid has invented life. And so you know he's got two of those now. He's got two little ones running around. I mean, one's just not even old enough to hold its head up. You know, so let him be a dad and enjoy that experience. That's incredible. And he's an author now. And I have since the very beginning, since the moment I read Kill Bill, I have told him that I thought he was a novelist. And I'm thrilled to see him writing books because the, uh, his stories are so much bigger than the tyranny of a two hour narrative. And I am ecstatic to see Quentin Unchained, you know, to see him have an opportunity to tell his stories his way and his length. So what was it like working on Django Unchained, you know, for, for you? Like, what was the experience like? Well, I will admit that it was the most grueling experience of my entire career for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is, you know, all of our costumes were hard on us. Uh, uh, so that's, that's a burden when you do period costumes. And it's hard on everybody, but I'm going to go ahead and say that it's rougher on the people that have to wear the courses. 
And well, because it interferes with things like eating. Yeah. You know, can you go five months without eating normally? Because I think it's not good for you. But um, so yeah, there's all there's a lot that went into why I would say that was the most grueling. But it was also the most gratifying. It's like I am a highly trained actor. <laughs> you know, I'm way more trained than than the average uh, film and television actor is. I'm more of a theater background. So in my training, I, I know how to do all kinds of amazing character development. And because of the way film and television works, you usually have such little notice between the day you get the job and the day you work the job that you're not able to use a lot of those skills because there's just not time. Whereas with Django, I read the script almost, gosh, like almost a year in advance. And I didn't know if I was in the movie. I did know that on page 92, it said, Laura Lee Candy Fitzwilly, a tall, strawberry blonde, 40-ish, attractive Southern belle, and was like, wait, what? <laughs> you read those, all those words in a row again. Wait a minute. Is, is he just saying Laura, 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 Laura? I mean, he even named her. Laura Lee Candy Fitzwilliam, my name is Laura Lynn Cayouette. So, you know, I, I'm sitting there the whole time I'm reading that part going, is this for me? Is this for me? But I didn't ask or no. I just, he, he is, he is a habit of sending me his scripts for notes and I was just reading it for notes. Like five months later, I get the audition. So then I get serious about, okay, I guess I need to prep for the audition. But I didn't want to prep the character fully because I didn't have the part and I so so I prepped for my audition then when I got the part I still had and this is remarkable this just never happened I still had months before I was shooting because they shot for five months in Montana and LA before they came to New Orleans most movies are done in less than 90 days start to finish this movie took over 10 months to shoot. So the first five were elsewhere and then the last five were in New Orleans. So I had five months of ramp up and I used them very, very, very well and, and had the time of my life prepping to play that part. And I was going to say, you, you did a great job and I was rewatching it again recently, you know, for the interview and, so I'm always sad when when you when you um get offed in the end, you know it's it's because it's it's kind of it's kind of like boom, and she's gone. I mean it's not it's it's. Well, I did own people. Well, I know, but but I'm talking about like as a deaf, it was kind of like um, it was kind of like a joke deaf in a sense where it was less like oh yeah. Well, yeah. Boom. <laughs> I compare it to the death in the back seat of the car in Pulp Fiction, and and I knew that the day we shot it. I talked to Quentin about that the day we shot it because it felt like the kind of thing that you're not, that some audience members would laugh before they knew whether or not they had permission to laugh. But because it's filmed so crazy, you give yourself permission to laugh. Like you kind of don't have a choice. So, yeah. So I compared it to that, that moment in Pulp Fiction where the kid's there and then he's not, he's just scrambled eggs all over the car. So, you know, that thing of where, it's death, but it's, and it doesn't even have to be justified. It's just death, but it's funny. <laughs> it's funny, like, oops, I didn't mean to laugh, but hello, that, I, I'm sorry. It's like when somebody falls and we laugh, 
We're not laughing because they're hurt. We're laughing because of how it looked. It looked funny when they fell. And we're not interested in whether it hurt at that moment because they are not on the ground yet. And that's true. And I was wondering when they did, when he, when you were getting shot, did they have you like, like wired? So that way, as soon as the gunshot goes off, you got pulled. Cause you, you were like, you were like yanked, like, you were like, boom, you were out of the scene. <laughs> yes. So first of all, I did it six times. Yeah. That's not fun. Yeah. I did it four times on the first day. And then I came back two days later when I was getting sore and did it two more times. Yes. He does everything old school. He shoots on film. And so uh, you want to get everything right quickly to save on the expense of that. And uh, I was wearing a harness that was rigged, you know, had a hook coming out the back. And um, then that had a thick wire that went up over a pulley (laughs) in the ceiling. And then that wire went down to a stunt guy standing on a ladder. So it is literally guy on a ladder. (laughs) And when I get hit, he jumps off the ladder and I fly somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, 40 miles an hour into, uh, and I'm good four or five feet off the ground too. I don't know if you noticed that, but I am really off the ground. I'm flying like a bird. Um, And so I fly into a, one of those one foot thick, gymnastic mat that's being held up like a catcher's mitt by four more stuntmen. And when I would hit the mat, they would lay it down and slide it across the floor to take out my impact. So that's how it would go. Uh, The gun would go off. The squibs would explode with the blood uh, as the guy's jumping off the ladder and I go flying into the giant mat held by four men, and then they throw it on the ground and slide me. That is so old school technique. I love it. I love it. I love it when it's that way because you know, nowadays everybody's using CGI and that kind of stuff. I love it when I know. it's old school because it shows so much better. Well, and the two people that pulled that stunt together were actually people I had um, not just worked with before but had hired before. Uh, I did a – oh, yeah. So Hellride. Um, I – produced that with Quentin. That's another one. I don't even count intermission. You're making me realize. Um, Hellride is uh, a movie that I produced with Quentin that's a biker movie. And it starred David Carradine, Dennis Hopper, Michael Madison. You know, it's a fun biker movie. So the guy who played Jamie Foxx's stunt double on Django was Michael Beach's stunt double on Hellride. But he also doubled a lot of people. And um, and then the guy who was our coordinator on Django was our coordinator on Hellride. So so basically they look there it's not like we found them or discovered them. They're they're really great. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're well known, you can look them up. Um, but yeah, so we were privileged to work with them on both of those things. But I felt very safe in their hands because I'd already worked with them before. It does make it when you have that comfort. And again, I think with a lot of um, directors, they'd like to have the same people work with them because once they have once they have that crew, they yep. have the shorthand. Everybody knows who can do what and how what their abilities yep. are. It makes things so much easier. Absolutely. Now you directed two like, two things. That I was uh, one of them I was able to watch. I saw Intermission, 
you know, so I was able to watch that because it's on your um, YouTube channel. So if anybody yeah. wants to go see it, you know, go to Laura Cayuette on YouTube and you, you can find it. You have a lot, a lot of videos on there. I do. But the other one is, I, I was not able to find this one, but I'm curious to know more about it. Lone Star Trixie. So Lone Star Trixie, I have, I do have that footage. I have about eight minutes of footage from that as a feature uh, script that I, um, a producer uh, approached me and said, you know, I'd like to shoot eight minutes of this and try and get financing for your screenplay. And um, this all happened right before I left to start a new life here in New Orleans. But, uh, but yes, so I, um, Richard Dreyfus agreed to play one of the leads and Mercea Monroe played the other. And um, in order to get the money, I had to play Trixie. I, I really would have preferred to have somebody else play Trixie so I could focus on the directing. But uh, in order to get the money, I had to play her. So I did. And, um, and you know, that was just one of those experiences where that if I had stayed in LA, maybe that could have brought me onto another path. However, I'll be honest with you. I'm glad I didn't stay in LA trying to headbutt my way as a female director when it just wasn't, just wasn't happening back then. It was extremely frustrating to be a female in the industry. And not that it's peachy now, but back then it was just impossible to be a female filmmaker. There was like six. Yeah, it was, it, it was, it's a ra- it was a rare, uh, rare, rare, rare thing. And, th- and thankfully it's getting yeah. less rare, but it's still very uncommon. Well, in my first 20 years of my career, I worked with exactly one female director. Katrina Bronson. That's it. That's the whole list. I did a one act play one time that had a female director, but you know, film and TV, they just weren't, it just, it wasn't a thing. It just wasn't a thing. So, uh, you know, I guess I, by leaving when I did, I saved myself 10 years of headbanging, (laughs) (laughs) but I also didn't get to make my project because as we were talking about earlier, you know, you have to dare to fail. And I didn't, I, I started down that path of daring to fail and getting my eight minutes together, and I'm very proud of my eight minutes. And the only reason I, that they're not just sitting there on YouTube is um, they, I, my music in there is not licensed. Ah. I was wondering. I was like, the other one's there, and I couldn't find it. But now, now it makes all it, music. It does WKRP in Cincinnati. It took forever for them to get the music rights to get that re-released. So it's, I know it, yeah, music is, is the thing that ties everything up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could just put it out there and, and let them shut me down eventually, but I, I haven't. Now, one of the things I, I did watch of yours, that Fantasy Island, because I love Malcolm McDowell. And you, oh, and wow. And you in the reboot, and you got to work with I Lauren, Lauren Holly in the, um, the episode. Did. So what was that like, you know, having that, um, epi- you know, being part of one of the Fantasy Island that season? Well, first of all, of course, just like with Flipper, the reboot that I did of Flipper, I mean, honestly, if you're a child of the 70s and you get to be in Fantasy Island and Flipper, I mean, gosh, what I leave out, Love Boat? Like, I, I feel satisfied that I got to be part of 70s television without ever being part of 70s television um, because I, I was part of these two reboots that were, you know, for, for people our age, a very special kind of of attempt to bring back something that was good storytelling from our childhood. Uh, and fantasy Island, I don't know why our parents let us watch that. I mean, good God, what were they thinking? But, uh, but they did. And, and the reboot was, I thought, well done. Um, Lauren Holly 
was uh, she had a deal, and so she was she had a production deal. So she was doing that guest spot as a uh, part of her, you know, as a one hand washing the other part of her deal. So she was doing this thing that probably was beneath her career at the time. I mean, she was a pretty big star at the time. She left Fantasy Island to go do um, Any Given Sunday with Oliver Stone. So, you know, she was flying high at the time and had just ended her marriage with Jim Carrey and was in the press all the time, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot of people formulated opinions about her and about that relationship, et cetera, et cetera, at the time. And I'm so glad I don't do that to people because that experience was, it was one of those where you learn some not fun lessons. I learned just like I did with, when I worked with Shirley MacLaine, that uh, the word difficult means female. (laughs) So when they say she's a difficult actor, what they mean is she's a female actor. Um, because you don't actually have to do anything else. I witnessed the whole thing unfolding with with Shirley MacLaine. I witnessed the whole thing unfolding with Lauren Holly. Both of these women have been called difficult. They were both called difficult while I was working with them. And um, and both of them, people were in, you know, interested in sabotaging or humbling or what you know. And both of them, my experience is that all they did to bring that on to themselves was like if they had signed a contract saying that they wouldn't do something and then the producers on the set are saying okay now do that something and they would say well I already signed a piece of paper that you signed that says that I'm not going to be asked to do that so if they said no to the thing they already said no to that everybody agreed was a no then they would be called difficult and I thought wow so that's what difficult is is that you're you're doing everything boys do only you're a female <laughs> so, because i've worked with a zillion difficult men and never heard any of them called difficult no they're called things like charismatic or quirky or right you know i know exactly what you mean because i've from talking to different people that have been in the business and interviews and stuff, it's, it seems to be if, if they don't want to do a nude scene all of a sudden because it was in their contract they weren't going to do it then suddenly oh they're difficult or they're not helping the work, or whatever. Well, and this was even he, this was even less heated than that. This was her outdate. She she had agreed to a certain schedule because of Oliver Stone, yeah. and they wanted to change her schedule. And she's like, "Yes, see, Oliver Stone, <laughs> you know, like that was already in the works. That's already happened before this. This is not my stepping stone to Oliver Stone. This is the thing I'm doing on my way to the office with Oliver Stone. So, you know, this is you can't." asked me for more than you already got a piece of paper saying you'll get. And I shouldn't be telling that story out of school, except for to say that I thought it didn't reflect poorly on her at all. And I, I don't even think it necessarily reflects poorly on the producers because it was so standard. It was so the way people did business, but I don't think the producers were aware that they were treating her differently than they would have treated her if she had been a boy. I just know and I, and I feel uncomfortable sometimes talking about the differences because I know that, that there are a lot of men who don't see what happens. And there are a lot of women who, who really want to believe that they have, that if only we had done it this way, then it would have turned out that way. Or if only, well, she just should have this, then then they would have that or, you know, and, and maybe so, but that's kind of like blaming the victim for wearing the wrong dress or drinking the wrong cocktail. 
So, yeah, it's systemic and it still happens. It's still a problem. It's still the way my industry is. And we're slowly evolving and growing and, and hopefully changing in a real way. And, and, and I think we are improving in getting that better, you know, from what I'm seeing and talking to people as you, as you yourself are experiencing. I'm um, going back to Richard Dreyfus. He was also instrumental in getting you started in keeping your writing career going yeah if i read correctly yeah yeah which is kind of something that i i i continue to recount the ways that different people have contributed themselves to my life and their support to my dreams and goals and richard has touched many different parts of my life and career just as quentin has and uh one of them was that when Back in the 90s, I mean, in the early 90s, when he saw he was uncomfortable with the idea of me being so talented and older and not going to have the breaks he thought I deserved and not going to have the career he thought I was was worthy of me. And so he wanted to, what, make that somehow more expansive, make it so that there'd be more areas where I could succeed. And... And he's also a selfish person. He had a script he wanted written. And so he paid for me to go to writer's boot camp, which was a six-week kickoff thing, and you have 10 weeks to finish it. I mean, the total of 10 weeks, but there's only six weeks of class. And so I went to that and took his one-sentence idea to turn that into a screenplay for him on his dime. And then at the end of the bootcamp program, they invite a certain number of people to join them for their two-year program. And I was invited. And so Richard paid for that as well. And so I was scholarshiped in with both of those, uh, which is actually the only way I've ever gotten any education is through scholarship and work. I, you know, I was working for Richard writing that script and I, and he paid for my bills. So not my bills, that bill, right? <laughs> Just writers of bootcamp. Um, but yeah, so that scholarship is, has been the way that I've gotten almost every bit of education I've ever had. And it requires more work to be a scholarship kid and it requires actual jobs. You have to do work, work in exchange for the money, et cetera. But that said, you end up learning a lot more stuff that way. And, and you are not going to, you're not as likely to be distracted by anything because you're, you're just fully nosed the grindstone on this one thing. So so I'm very grateful for Writer's Boot Camp teaching me a totally different way of approaching creativity, storytelling, production, getting things done. And it is literally how I went, you know, I have this master's degree in creative writing and everything that taught me, I wrote one book in 20 years. Then I go and learn all this other stuff in my industry and then I write five books in four years. Because that's one thing our industry knows how to do is get it done. You know, no excuses, just get it done. So everything I learned at Writer's Boot Camp put together with everything I learned in my master's program and then my life as an author and my life as a filmmaker, all of that together is what I use to create Writing Unblocked, which is my latest book. Yeah, and I was able to read the book and if you get the if you purchase the book you can also you also get little bonus things where you're talking from person through their schedule and how to how to yeah. get, how to get the book set up and now 
I thought it was kind of cool because a lot of people were like, I'm not a wordsmith. I'm not this and that. And I, I've said this myself because some people say, oh, you should you should write this as an article or whatever. Some of the right. stuff I get from an interview, and I'm just like, ah, you, you know. And, and But having read for that, it's, oh, now, now I have an idea. If I wanted to do it, you know, I have this, this formula I can go through to help yeah. set that goal that's and help I, do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what I was hoping is to create this repeatable thing that I now know how to do create it for you that you can have this repeatable skill set that doesn't require you being a good writer or an educated writer or a writer at all. All it requires is you have an idea and the will to turn it into a story. And that's it. And you, it could be like you said, an article, it could be that you had a one. The next thing I'm writing is a, a screenplay that I, wrote in LA that was a huge undertaking and I had big, big plans for it. And then I left LA. And so rather than trying to make it happen the way I originally envisioned it, I'm now rewriting that screenplay as a book series. And so I'm taking all the elements of the screenplay and turning those into cards and materials to then now make this book series. And I already can tell you that it's going to be so much easier to, do. I know how to do it. I know how to, I don't even have to wonder, oh, how will I pull that off? How will I turn this, you know, 150 page screenplay into this series of books? I already know how, and it won't even be hard. It's going to be fun. And I know that because one thing that I was aware of is, is for my personality, if it's not fun, I'm not going to do it. So, <laughs> I mean, there are many things I do just because they need to get done but they have to be peppered with fun things in between. I can't, it can't just all be toil. I can't just be toiling away and beating my own back. And, you know, I can't, I, I'm not, I'm disciplined, but I am no masochist. I'm not interested in feeling terrible. So I had to make ways to do this that would not just be time savers and, and not time savers for the sake of saving time, time savers because, I already learned how the, the faster way is to do it. Just do it the faster way. It's a time saver because I did the, all the mistakes <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saving you those. Just trust me. Don't do the mistakes. Here you go. Here's the, here's how you do it without the mistakes. But there's also peppered in throughout. There are tons of exercises, especially in the um, creating characters videos. There's a ton of exercises that are, you know, these supercharged brainstorming techniques that are fun fun. And it doesn't matter whether you're an intellectualist, if you're, you know, a book learner, or if you're somebody with dyslexia and had, you know, you had to drop out at eighth grade because school just wasn't for you, or it doesn't matter. None of that matters. It's all about organizing your thoughts and knowing what it is you're going to write before you ever even sit down to write. So you're never blocked. You're never scared. You're never confused. You're just going on this path, telling your story. And it's so much more fun and it gets done. Oh, it is. And there's one other book of yours I want to mention because I find it fascinating. And I know it's set up for people that want to become an actor or help them or help them that are already in acting. But even though I'm not going into that field, I thought it was fascinating to learn the mindset, what they have, what people go through that are going into that. No, no being K-N-O-W for people that, you know, because it's an audio thing. No small parts, an actor's guide to turning minutes into moments and moments into a career. And I thought it was really a fun read 
for me who likes to talk to different people like yourself you. to learn about it, it was because it gives me that perspective of what they're, you're probably thinking, you know, well, definitely what you're thinking because you wrote the book, but I mean, other people that are in the <laughs> field. <laughs> well, I wrote that book, like I said, for, for all the people that have ever asked me questions at, that were just so easy for me to answer. I was like, let me just put this out there. Let me just tell everybody everything I know. And the reaction really was that everybody came to me saying, all, all the people in my industry were like, I can't believe you told the truth. And my feeling was, I can't believe nobody else has before. Like, what are we doing here? Just tell people what's real about this job, about this career, about what it is and what it can never be and how you navigate it and whether you might like it at all. You know, there, there are this, the streets of Hollywood are littered with people who got famous for who knows what and then figured out that, oh, that's not actually a thing. Like that is not, that's not something that's just famous. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't buy me anything. It doesn't pay my bills. It does you know, if you're famous for what? Getting out of a car and accidentally flashing your hoo-ha when you got out of the car, that, that is not going to, now there are people who prove me wrong. The Kardashians have an entire lifestyle off of one sex tape. So, you know, what do I know? But I'm not interested in being famous. I want to be a working actor. And to be a working actor means that you might end up famous, but that isn't the goal. And I would be okay with being famous for curing cancer. I'd be okay with being famous for, you know, anything that was a contribution to society or that made people's lives better. And some people argue that acting makes their life better, um, that entertainment uh, makes their life better. I'm one of them. I, I need movies and TV. I need to laugh. I need to be entertained. I need to be transported. I need it. I need it. So for me, I can find many examples of people who are lifesavers to me because of their work as entertainers. But I think if you want to know how to be famous, just, you know, do something bizarre or horrible. If you want to make a living as an actor, that's hard to figure out. Nobody tells you how to do it. And I thought, well, shoot, I'm just going to tell people. Everybody has a different path, but there are some constants that are real here. That, you know, there is a way to become a one percenter, and I can describe it to people. And the biggest thing is in the title is you just knowing, just understanding that only one person gets to be Leo in Titanic. Everybody else is the not Leos in Titanic, you know? <laughs> Does that mean they don't count? They're part of the story. It's a huge cast. There's like a million people saying things and doing things. And sometimes our favorite people in a movie are not the stars. So I, I think recontextualizing failure, recontextualizing what the idea of uh, the purpose of a life in entertainment is about and figuring out your own path that works for you. That's all doable stuff. So I wrote how to do it. And, and like I said, I read it and now I, I don't know. I don't know how well it would work because I'm not going into that field, but it seems to me it has all the basics there. And, and for people that aren't even want to, don't even want to pursue acting, like I said, it really gets you an idea of what the mindset is and what the, 
to work because a lot of people think, oh, they just show up and everything and everything's limos and that. Yeah, for, for a certain yeah. small percentage, yeah. that's true. But the vast majority, no, they're not driving, you know, and they're not getting driven in limos and all those other things. That's, that's, that's well, and even if you get a limo, what does that change? You still got to do the job. Yeah, you still gotta so do you work. got there in a different car and you didn't worry about parking. So what? What other projects do you, do you want to talk about that have, they have coming up? Anything else you want to mention? By the way, the no small parts, one thing that I really am excited about about that book is how many people have told me that they're not actors and they've read it and gotten so much out of it. That That's very gratifying for me for how many people say that it's really great for self-starters, entrepreneurs, anybody who wants to take control of their own life. So that's very gratifying for me. Um, I have a couple of things coming out on um, I, I, this brand new season of Queen Sugar, which is Oprah Winfrey and Ava DuVernay's uh, television show. Uh, I'm, I have a recurring part and I will be making one last appearance in their final season in my character. Uh, so uh, she's, um, Marlene is my character and she's a NA sponsor. So she is running a meeting and so that will be appearing at some point. And I did a, I, I, I didn't really know much about juggalo culture. Do you know what a juggalo is? No, no, I don't know juggalo. I know you're like something off ramp juggalo road is something that you've been working yes. you know, so on. <laughs> so Insane Clown Posse is a um, recording group and they, um, their fans are called juggalos. And it's a culture that, you know, as a New Orleanian, it's very easy to slip right into this idea. You know, you costume up and you have all these routines and, and it's about community and hanging out together and all that. Now it's evolved over time. And I think that's addressed in the movie, but um, I'm only in the first, in the opening of the movie. I am, uh, I am helping the movie kick off. So. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't want to spoil yeah. anything, but I mean, you know, we know it's coming no. out. And for those that are interested, you also write, fiction books you have I a do. whole series the charlotte reed mystery series i know a lot of people i love i'm, I'm curious to get to read one of these books is i love sue grafton and i think you're going to probably be similar in writing her because she used to write screen right she used to write screenplays and then she took that same approach to writing her alphabet series well i'd be interested to see what you say after you read it because i will tell you one thing i did that that no mystery writer that wants to make money ever does i didn't include any murders there are no murders, only mysteries. So there's sort of more in the vein of like an adult Nancy Drew kind of thing, because there there is nobody, you know, dead who we have to pretend that how entertaining it is to look at a dead person for two hours. So I I personally watch lots of things that are murder mysteries, but I didn't want to write any. So um, so they're all set in New Orleans, and they start in 2009. The first book, which is a really short, you know, it's just an introduction to the character and to the milieu. So it's a, it's a pretty breezy read. The last book is like twice as long as the first one. But the first one starts in 2009 when the Saints are headed to the Super Bowl. And I have tried my darndest to capture New Orleans at its very happiest ever and bottle that lightning and give that to people who weren't able to be here because it was such a, you had to be here moment 
But I have been told many times that my attempt is worthy and that I do seem to at least gather the edges of what it was like to be here. So I'm happy about that. Well, you're talking to a guy that grew up reading Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. So if if there's, I'm looking now, you got me, you know, more looking forward to more because sometimes I get tired of all the the bodies. It, oh, it's always a murder. Who solved the murder? I like it where it's like, like a Scooby Doo kind of thing, or Nancy Drew, or, or Hardy Boys, where they're all right. They're solving a mystery, but it doesn't always have to be life threatening stakes. Well, Quentin again is the fault for this. Quentin is it's it, it, it's always Quentin or Richard in these stories. Um, Quentin said to me one time that I should write a mystery series. Uh, he he wanted me to write a detective series. And I think he had a more hard-boiled character in mind. But he wanted me to write a detective series, and he said, Laura, it's, it's like Columbo. Everybody wants to know how your mind works. It doesn't matter what the mystery is. It doesn't matter what she's solving it. Everybody just wants to know, how does that woman's mind work? Because it's just baffling how you figure things out, and you figure everything out. So I want to see that, and I think other people want to see that, of how does Laura figure stuff out. So... That's the Charlotte Reed mystery series jumping off point was how does Charlotte unravel things? How does she puzzle stuff? And, and she, like me, is a actor. And so a lot of what she uses for her skill set to figure things out is her understanding of people's behavior and what people are, what people's motivations are most likely to be. And that helps her to sort out what's happening. And she's also, you know, a detail-oriented person. I mean, you, you see her behind the scenes at the same time as you're seeing her solve these mysteries. And I will say I'm very excited about this. The way I wrote them is that um, they're sort of like the television series Treme insofar as there are fictional characters doing fictional things. Oh, my gosh. What in the world? There are fictional characters doing fictional things. There are fictional characters doing non-fictional things that really happen. There are real people doing fictional things and then real people doing things that really happened as themselves. And so I got a lot of sign off on norm on, you know, our community here. And one of the people that let me borrow his name and personhood was Brian Bat from Mad Men. Um, he is featured heavily in the second book and, uh, as Brian Bat, I just wrote it that Brian Bat is, you know, I just let it be Brian and, um, and then made up this fictional story of a mystery that he was involved in. So, you know, it's been really fun because the, the locations, any one of those books would be a great tour guide book. You know, you could <laughs> definitely eat your way through this. I always list the foods and detail the foods because hello, it's New Orleans. I always list the music on my Pinterest page. You can see photos of all the places and on my YouTube channel, there's videos of all the music and, you know, like I try and make it immersive so that you can actually go to new Orleans and experience Charlotte Reed's new Orleans through my different sites. That is wonderful. And for people that want to have this experience of meeting you again, September 15th through the 17th, you're going to be at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention in Hunt Valley, Maryland, and I'm sure you'll have pictures for people to um, get autographs with or, or do um, selfies with you. Will you, have any, will you have any of your books there with you, too? I will. I will bring some books. 
Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I want to thank you again for let, allowing me to interview you. It, it's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you so much, and thank you very much for having me. Hello, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Laura. And again, if there's a question that I didn't ask her that you wanted to ask her, you can do it in person at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention in Hunt Valley, September 15th for the 17th, 2022. Tickets are $20 a person for at the door. Children 16 and under are free. So if you have a young one with you, they can come in there and get to meet a lot of different people and see a lot of different things, seminars. It's a great time, as we talked about with Martin earlier in the preview episode of what's coming up at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention. Breaking news. I was only going to have originally three interviews of the people that are going to be at the convention prior to the convention starting, but I just got a chance, just got done interviewing Constance, Constance Towers, who is also going to be at the Mid Atlantic Nostalgia Convention. Her interview will be the next episode out. She's been in movies like The Horse Soldiers, Naked Kiss. She's been on stage with Yul Brenner and The King and I. She was in General Hospital, Capital, episodes of Perry Mason. We have a wonderful conversation that's about a little over 90 minutes long. You're going to love it and enjoy it. Um, I hope you listen for the next episode with Constance Towers, and I hope everybody gets a chance, if they can, to go to the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention. And what we're going to do is um, let a little episode end the, end the episode with a promo for Laura's books. And if you want to get them in person, you can meet her there, or if you can order them through her website, lauracaluette.com. Hello, everybody. One more thing, just before we listen to Laura's promo. Laura was very generous, and she's offering everybody a 20% off coupon code for Writing Unblocked and the Creating Characters course. The code is die, cast, podcast, all in uppercase letters, and the die and the cast are separate words. And if you go to our website, lauracaluette.com, and put in Diecast Podcast, again, 20% off on Writing Unblocked and the Creating Characters course. And as I told everybody in the interview, I've read the book, and it's a very good book to read. And, the, and the, I say, especially if you're thinking of going into writing and other stuff, it helps really put everything together, and it makes a lot of sense. So now to the promo. Hi, I'm Laura Cayouette, an actor for over 25 years, but I'm best known as Leonardo DiCaprio's sister in Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. I'm also the author of eight books, and I'd love to tell you how I went from writing one book in 20 years to five books in four years with my proven three-step prep. Do you have an idea for a book but no idea how to start? Have you started a book but no idea how to finish? Maybe you're a novelist with an idea for a series, but no experience tackling something that ambitious. The Writing Unblocked ebook can take you from an idea to a completed project, no matter your writing skill level. And my six-video immersive creating characters course will help you create a whole cast of three-dimensional characters to move your stories forward and bring your ideas to life. Find out more on my website, lauracayouette.com.